Let's look at the word. Thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Do we have a warm place to be? We ask that you would bless us in your word. In your son's name, amen. As you can tell in really big font at the top of the page, we are in Timothy. First letter, Timothy. First chapter of the first letter of Timothy. And what... I've been in this passage a couple, three years ago, and then maybe almost ten years ago. Uh, I know I did a Bible study on Timothy, backyard Bible study, I think one of these summers, not recently, pretty recently. But Timothy is so valuable in that it, as a pastoral letter, it's not just about Paul talking to Timothy about church order and that such stuff, which you get real concern about one person the Apostle's mind applied to the life of Timothy. And you'd like to have that kind of scriptures all over the place where like you were being written to, not as a group of people like Colossians, but to Timothy, to you. Because it's the way Paul speaks um, about faith, about the life, it's helpful for us to readjust how we approach it. I was at a last night that during the women's fellowship. Of course, I was left alone. Then John showed up because he was left alone, and he was not going to let me rest. And then Gunn showed up because he was left alone. And then a bunch of NSA students, and it just like there was 20 people trying to get in the library by the evening. I don't think, we'd, when did we get to bed? 11, 11.30, something like that? Yeah, it was just a, and of course, with NSA students, there was, there were questions about my theology. So, there was a vigorous discussion over some things. And uh, one of the things I think I mentioned last week or the week before, about all of us, who like to talk about things. Talking about things is a charming pastime which makes you feel, if it's intelligent conversation, that you're really advancing, you know, like you're really becoming more of a, of a being. Especially the big issues, people differ back and forth. So I wanted to, as I, I was thinking about this, and in the discussion, um, they brought up the Trinity as the cornerstone of their approach to all things. And I said, the Trinity, that's not even mentioned in the Bible. I mean, I believe in the Trinity, but it's not a topic that is mentioned in the Bible. You have to sort of figure it out with available texts as if the Bible wasn't that concerned with whether you know and to then make it the cornerstone of your so what, what so I was thinking what was what was the centerpiece where you should be with your mind regarding your faith and Paul in the first chapter of Timothy comes through for us Paul, I Paul oh that's a one Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, 
and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, he had an ample moment to push the Trinity into that passage. and He's talking about the Father and the Son. He doesn't call it by the triune God. Look at what he does say. Where are we being pointed in our religious affections? Savior, God our Savior, Jesus our hope. God the Father, Jesus our Lord. So there's God our Savior, Jesus our hope, God our Father, Jesus our Lord. Almost as if whatever relationship they do hold, and they do have a relationship. It's more important that you be thinking about his salvation, and your hope in it, and his fatherhood of you, it's God the Father and Jesus our Lord. Now does that play out? Am I just I'm, you know, tilting at windmills um, because I just had a conversation which seemed to be stressing a theological point that had, had far more in it in Thomas Aquinas than had any Bible. And people will camp out on those interesting definitions, and it's interesting philosophy. It's interesting pursuit of ideas. No, no, I love that sort of thing. But I felt somehow that when you don't have your Savior, your hope, your Father, and your Lord tied up in the way you uh, even introduce yourself. Paul is introducing his dear Timothy uh, let me magnify my statement about God here for a moment. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to occupy themselves with myths, and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the divine training that is in faith. Okay, so just like, I think I mentioned this, I had a call from a person out of town about starting a home fellowship. And it is very important as you go about your life, if you ever have a home fellowship, if you ever um, start replacing the, the inadequacy of churches around you with gathering together with even just your family or a couple of Christians you know. Um, it doesn't take much to get it wrong. Everybody else has been getting it wrong with funding. You know, you say to the degree churches get it wrong, they seem to get it wrong with millions of dollars. Maybe even trillions of dollars. We know there is a doctrine that we hold, a teaching. That's all the doctrine means, is the teaching. Don't hold a different teaching. And then he warns, he just said, you don't want to be different. Now, we're 2,000 years down the line. 
And we know they've had the church has had ample opportunity and has done many different doctrines. So now we're in a conundrum. Conundrum? Have a conundrum. What do I do? He's telling Timothy in the first generation of Christianity, warn people not to be about different doctrine. It was pretty evident. He had the apostle right there, what the different doctrine was, different than Paul's. And it describes it a little bit. We're going to look for hints. It describes it. Nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than the divine training that is in faith. So this is what happens to get people into a different doctrine. At least one of the things to get them into a different doctrine is you start listening to the fanciful ideas, well, what if, you ever get in that conversation, what if, there's no what if, don't promote speculation. Don't go to the passages of scripture where speculations can find a big home. You have the endless genealogies and what if, myths, stories that come down to you through Christian circles, but don't come to you for the re- revelation of God. Now what he says, that, that's a problem he was having. These are the kinds of things, people getting together at the coffee shops in downtown Ephesus and talking about things non-stop and they're of the spiritual nature and involve Christianity, but he says, this is what I left you in town to get them to stop doing. Well, if you're not supposed to do that, aren't we kind of pleased? College town, Christian churches in a college town, uh, people, pastors tend to be more rationalistic, more in, informational. They have theologies that they get into debates about. We have to watch out. You are responsible for whether or not you are listening to a different doctrine than what God wants you to hear. Um, and you need to match it. You need to match the doctrine that St. Paul holds, not the doctrine that Christianity has held for 2,000 years. Because remember, he is warning the first generation to not listen to that, but that means there's a possibility they did. When you look at, say, what happened with Roman Catholicism and the fact that the Reformation needed to happen, (laughs) because they had forgotten the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was no longer preached in Roman Catholic circles anywhere for hundreds of years. Martin Luther had to, reading the Bible, had to go, oh, what, what? Surprised the heck out of it. He found the doctrine that had been ignored, and he preached it, and people were saved. But the people who said, No, we're all holding this other doctrine for hundreds of years we've held it. This is something you, it means that you have to be conscious that you're looking at 2,000 years and it might not be friendly to you. It might not be giving you the faithful church. So where do you start? This was a question last night about how much doubt, how much falsification, how much personal thought you put into what you're believing. I'd say at this stage you better put a lot in. But what's it supposed to do? I mean, I said this morning, I believe in the Trinity, uh, but I don't believe the triune God is the centerpiece, his trinity-ness, 
is the centerpiece of your religion. Well, if I say that, what is? What, what, what are we up to versus we know there's different doctrines, we know we add to it by speculating, contributing to Christian theory. Um, he tells us, he's telling a personal friend, guys left in charge of doing this, he says, I don't want them to do this, we want them to do this. Verse 5, whereas the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Not a love that issues from a program to love people at the soup kitchen. That's not where love comes from. Programs don't produce love. Pure hearts produce love. Good consciences produce love. And sincere faith produces love. This is the aim. This is what we're about. You want to do good to people because the Lord Jesus Christ has made you into the kind of person who does good to people. But we don't want to plan to create you create circumstances in which you get to be good and hope you'll become good later on. No. The aim of our charge is changing people's hearts so that love comes out of them naturally. The aim is not to speculate on endless genealogies and come up with Christian-sounding theologies that we can fight about and argue about and uh, write books about. We're not trying to create a big library. We're trying to create people pleasing to God. He warns us, I mean, this is, again, this is a personal warning. Don't let them do this. They can do this and hurt the church. Do this instead. Love people. Be loving. Certain persons, verse 6, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. When you let go of pure heart, sincere faith, and a good conscience, and you want to stay religious, you'll be talking about vain, vain things. You'll be arguing about niceties in church order. You'll be arguing about end times. I was pleased last uh, night, early in the evening, some of these NSA types heard that I had a different eschatology. And one of them politely said, could you tell us what it is? And so I said, okay, how am I going to do this briefly? And uh, Gunn and Graham were there. And I said, you actually don't know if my sons have ever heard this. Because I didn't catechize my kids on my eschatology. And I think they had heard it in some frame, but... Graham said afterwards, he said, oh, I hadn't actually heard that concisely put. Have an eschatology. There are some people who don't think you're a Christian unless you agree with their eschatology. There are some people who don't think you're a Christian if you don't agree with them, their system of church order. They don't think you're a Christian if you don't have the right view about the mechanism of how someone believes. Whatever the difference, they will be spending their time because not pure heart, not a good conscience, not a sincere faith, you're not producing the excitement about the Christian life that ought to be the centerpiece. What the gospel does in you, remember, our Savior and our um, hope, our Father and our Lord, 
are there, our relationship with God is to have this aim that love be created in this specific way. And that Christianity, that is, this is a description of a Christianity that you might all recognize. Vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. I have been in countless discussions that were fun. We're doing it because they're enjoyable. And you begin to realize it was vain, and the people really didn't know what they were talking about. And we entertained ourselves as if perhaps this was good enough to replace Christianity with. This is the way we live Christianity. Now, I run a ministry that hangs on that sort of thing. But far better when those conversations occur that they start to move their way back to our Savior and our hope so that you're moving towards the aim of what our charge is rather than recreating in, you know, smarty-pants theology. Because people will occupy themselves in religious conversation. And if it's very smart and they use words like, what's a good word to use? Um, hypostatic union. And you'll say, hypostatic union? And he's called, instead, of calling, instead of calling it end times, you call it the eschaton. Because you have to make sure that the people believe that you're really into this vain discussion, really. But you know, somebody who has a pure heart and a sincere faith and a good conscience, I don't care what you're talking about, you could talk about baseball. You could talk about raising kids. You could talk about all sorts of things because people introduced to pure hearts that love them can find that those pure hearts and love are doing far better for them in the discussion, doing better for them in the service to their physical needs, doing better to them in just the service of, of the life together is far more benefited rather than divisive. You get far more division when you have vain discussion, mythic speculations, and people having their pride on the line because they're not pure of heart, they have their pride on the line. They have conceit on the line. They want to make sure everyone agrees with them because that's what, you know, people with opinions like. They desire to be teachers of the law. They like vain discussion. Discussion, oftentimes, is a replacement for producing the life that God would be pleased with. And in 38 years of the big house, I've had a lot of discussions, some of them repeats. And uh, sometimes you begin to suspect that they want to talk about it because they don't want to do it. Or they don't want to do that which the Lord is calling them to do. I uh, recently been in, was in a discussion in which a certain group of people was, the, the key element was disliking that group of people. And it concerned me a little bit, not just because it was disliking that group of people or thinking ill of them just in principle, but they weren't thinking after the fact. If I said, okay, grant it, grant it that these people are just awful. What do you do as a Christian when you grant that these people are just awful? 
what, what love is required of you, what evangelism, how do we solve the problem? We don't just argue our way to the, to the conclusion that they're awful. When, when Paul says Cretans are evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and liars, uh, it's not a compliment, I don't think. Those sorts of judgments are, can be made. You probably made them yourself. But if the aim of your charge is love that issues from a pure heart, you know, should know that when you conclude that some people are just awful, you don't get to consider them enemies. Or if you consider them enemies, you consider them enemies as Christ told you to consider enemies. Whom you love, whom you bless, whom you return good to. But the vain discussion too often acts like it's not going to make a curve around to your love. It's not going to come back around and address Christ in you. And the same with religion. So why don't these people just talk about politics or something? Well, sometimes they do. But why don't they just go off and argue about science? Well, religion is a promising profession. Okay? I'm in the, I'm not really professional, but I do have pews. And they're partially filled. But it's a great place for some persons who have a need to be uh, listened to, followed. Uh, everyone's about expanding their degree of effect. Um, what is it called? Extension of will. And boy, extension of will. You know, my, my temptation, because I'm a radical Anabaptist, I, I, I don't have any programs or standards or rules or whatever. Uh, I'm hoping my arguments be, are good enough. But others like the law. The law comes in, man, you start becoming, the desire to be teachers of the law because it's the centerpiece of just about every religion is the rules you've got to keep. And if you start arguing about that as part of your vain discussion, it's, it's going to be the whole idea of controlling others. There are people who love thinking about doing good to the world, not because they want to do good, but because they want to control others. They want to set up a system by which we're going to do good and I'm going to be in charge of you doing that good. The same is true with the law. Now we know that the law is good, verse 8, if anyone uses it lawfully. Understanding this, now I want you to, you know where I'm coming from, I'm a new covenant freak. I believe that Jesus Christ abolished the law with his commandments and ordinances. You might not agree, fine, but this is the teaching of Paul. The law is not laid down for the just. It, we are not a church that has the Ten Commandments or any other commandments out of the scriptures posted on the wall for you to live by. Because law is there for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, immoral persons, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's who the law is for. Criminals. I mean, look at the list. It's primarily criminal acts of, 
and the law steps in with greater and greater noise, the more criminal something gets. But it's not written down for you, the believer, the non-criminal, to be living your life by. It's to increase the trespass and to punish those that are going to be criminal. So if I'm going to be arguing about the law in the church, the person who is trying to introduce the law to believers doesn't understand the good of the law because you have to understand this, verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just. So, somebody who's off on that pony trying to ride it around the church they might have a church developed around this. Vain discussion and teaching of the law. We have to remember what our aim is again. How do I build the saints up? Purity of heart, good conscience, sincere faith. I thank him, verse 12, who has given me strength for this. Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, my father years ago, I told you he was talking to Doug and me about something. He said, you know, people, maybe he'd been dealing with college students too long and how the young, uh, Leslie, let me say, I haven't just finished the dang story. Well, another story, Leslie, I'll get back to Dad in a minute. It happens to us all the time. Someone new comes into our library. There's a few new people last night. And uh, we introduce ourselves. Hi, uh, we're Evan and Leslie Wilson. And you are? Grace. Or Fro is this guy's name. Fro. Not Afro. Fro. Now, it was her name was Grace, and his name was Fro. They don't tell you the rest of their name. They say, your last name is what? You know, who found out that Fro was his last name? He's actually Elijah. But people don't tell you. And it changes things. Because one of those girls, was she was a Belshner. And uh, suddenly we realized, okay, we know your brothers. Had no way of thinking that otherwise. So, back to Jim Wilson. He said, you know how people start to... There's that personalness, just a first name. Hi, I'm Danny, or Steve, or whatever it is. And as, as you could call me Steve. How about calling you by your name? Well, they want that closeness. They want that, that informalness. And Jesus had become that back in the Jesus people days. Uh, and people would just, you know, Jesus, what a, what a friend we have in Jesus. Which is fine. I got no objection, just like I have no objection morally to someone just telling me their first name. But, my father said, you get people's attention with the serious business of this when you say, Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't just say, Jesus. Well, that's they know who I'm talking about, but they don't know how you feel about it. Remember we were looking at a passage last week, I think, about magnifying the Lord. In your speech, He is thanking his God who gave him strength for this ministry that had the aim of love that issued from a pure heart and wasn't going to get caught up in theologizing. And God was going to strengthen him 
through Christ Jesus his Lord, because he judged me faithful by appointing me to his service, though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted him. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He is testifying to his friend who knows his testimony, but he comes back around and describes it in short order, where he says, I got mercy from God, and that grace overflowed with love and faith in Christ Jesus. And then he sums it up. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Does that, does that phrase cross your mind? You do remember sinning, don't you? I'm sure you've stopped, all of you, by now. Maybe it's been years, but... Perhaps you could try to reach back into the archives of your life in the past and go, yeah, I remember that. I have this vague sense of you know, not quite doing the right thing, maybe making a mistake. But you say, you actually say, I haven't actually, if I gave my testimony, we'd have to let the children leave the room. Some of you were bad, really bad. Paul was really bad. Blasphemed insulted him, persecuted Christ. We don't generally see that. We were reading a book last uh, week uh, in our reading, and one of the good characters is overwhelmed with his own sin in the moment, and he causes him to say, sweet Jesus, when he suddenly realizes what's going on and these evil people are in front of him, and he realizes how it's affected him. And so he says, sweet Jesus. And the evil guy goes, sweet filth. And he's like, whoa. A fight breaks out. Because we suddenly recognize what blasphemy is like. And how bad it is. But we need to, we could probably feel that viscerally. They insulted my mother. You know, you, if they insult my mother's or my wife's virtue, I'm going to be on them like nobody's business. Now hold it. Do we really even understand the glory of our Christ if we don't find ourselves that the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, sure and full? You had experience with the sins that you had committed and the forgiveness of God. You have not a clue how to describe the Trinity. But you know for sure what happened to you. The Trinity didn't happen to you. Salvation happened to you. And that's why it's sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners. I mean, if I think of anything about Jesus Christ, is his death, burial, and resurrection. Because that plays right to my need, right to my circumstance. And I am the foremost of sinners, he says at the end of 15. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience for an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
your circumstance, your sin, your remembrance of that, however bad you were, your ability to think back and go, Jesus Christ, sweet Jesus. And not set them aside with vain discussion. Not set them aside with Trinitarian formulations. Again, I'm a Trinitarian. I even have a formulation. But it isn't the cornerstone of your life. It might be the cornerstone of Trinitarian Christendom, but that's a history of a lot of people who didn't even believe the gospel. Okay? The church didn't know the gospel for centuries. People who didn't believe, hadn't passed death of life, arguing over the Trinity and making Christendom Trinitarian, because we know for sure those Jehovah's Witnesses don't belong here. And I agree with them on the Trinity for the most part. But this is more important. It's of first importance. It's the aim of our charge. It's a sure saying, needing your full acceptance. He displayed his perfect patience, waiting for you to repent. And sometimes we wonder why people aren't getting saved. Well, they might not really like arguments about the Trinity. Or don't find it, gee, I want to get saved now because you sure laid that out for me. Your eschatology, your arguments over creation, whatever it is. Jesus Christ dying to save sinners and you being the recipient of that in such a way that your pure heart, your sincere faith, and your good conscience in Christ produces a love to them. They are the recipients of a message that you're centered on that has practical effect at them, to them, versus the fights that vain discussion and speculation get us into. And Paul does this. This is a personal letter between guy A, guy B, that know each other, and he's laying this out, but he can't resist the, the flavor of it. Because as soon as he says, <coughs> an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, verse 17, <coughs> excuse me, he has a little mini benediction. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You ever fall down into a benediction? You know, we, we might you say, well, Devin, I really actually struggled with cursing. You know, I uh, hit my thumb with a hammer and expletive, expletive, expletive. I shouldn't be like that, but that's, you know, that's what just comes out. You know, I'm kind of American on this. And uh, I try to keep it clean, but, you know, you say things when you're angry, upset. Paul understands and lives the aim of his charge. And so when he thinks about these things, when you jostle him, when you've heard that talk that probably many teachers have talked to about what you spill out, what's inside you, do you spill out benedictions? This other quality of the archdeacon in this book we're reading, he's walking around singing hymns in the middle of conversations. Just smiling at everybody, looking at them, answering questions in the middle of the verse of a hymn. 
And uh, you go, eh, that's the kind of Christian I would like to be. Do you sing God's praises? Do you magnify the Lord? Do you speak in any kind of way that says the aim of your charge is also this kind of heart, this kind of faith, this kind of conscience, and the result that I be a loving person rather than the super well-informed, difficult-to-get-along-with type of person? I think you can be a loving, well-informed person, too. But don't replace the aim of the Christian charge with knowing a lot of stuff. This charge I commit to you. Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophetic utterances which pointed to you, that inspired by them you may wage the good warfare. Now listen to that. He had told him, I left you there that you could get people to stop being this way and start being that way. He's now calling it the good warfare. He's calling it that which was prophesied over Timothy. It seems like it's not just Paul that's concerned about that. It's the spirit of the living God prophesying through their prophets that Timothy was given this charge. It pointed to him that being left in Ephesus, now you say, what, what do I know about Ephesus? Well, Paul would, you know, taught there for three years. But he left Timothy in Ephesus to stop certain things from going on. And they will go on in the church. They will happen at All Souls Christian. We're not, you know, God's, you know, perfect little group. And all the other churches in town have problems. We're going to have problems that are you know, potentially moral or potentially doctrinal. But it's warfare. But it's not warfare between your view of the Trinity and my view of the Trinity. The warfare is between people who listen to vain discussion and want to be teachers of the law and promote endless speculations, basing their faith on, you know, myth. And we know that this is true in Ephesus, because I have this on the side here, and Trina there at the bottom. The Ephesians, Paul, later in his ministry, stops to talk to their leadership in Miletus. Out of Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you want to be the kind of person when the, the apostle says, don't let anyone teach a different doctrine, you go, yeah, and I know what Paul's was. It was love that issues from a pure heart, a sincere faith, a good conscience. That's what it was. It's based in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. It is based in the gospel. So, you can work with confidence. 2,000 years, you can look back at the writings of the person who warned you about it and say, I can find my way to that stability. He goes on in verse 19 of Timothy. You may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. He reminds him again. It's like, that wasn't just a throwaway line earlier. Go back to that holding faith and a good conscience. And then he tells you what happens when you don't. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. 
among them Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We need to be the kind of Christians that live our days in the gospel and the joy of it and the effect of it that it affects how we talk theology, it affects how we talk religion, that we keep coming back to our Christ, our mouths are exploding with benediction rather than cursings. Because Paul had to deliver two named individuals. I, I don't know if they're really Christians. He seemed to treat them as Christians. But someday you're going to probably meet Hymenaeus and Alexander. And you go, oh man, that must have been rough, guys, huh? The apostle telling the whole world he delivered them to Satan so they would learn to shut the heck up. That they wouldn't blaspheme. Find the, you might say, the cornerstone, the linchpin of what it is that is central to your faith and your strength. That would be the right thing. Not being right about, you know, I don't know if you knew, I am right about everything I affirm. But I just don't care enough about those things. But we can get in arguments about it later. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Keep us to Paul's aim. His desire for Timothy, his desire for the church, his desire that we would not be creating more chaos, but the peace of you, the forgiveness, the love that is available in our faith. In your son's name we pray. Amen.